sometimes there are passages in the Bible that it's like we feel like we're done with them and we move on. And then there's sometimes where there's passages in the Bible where it feels like it's not done with us yet. And so tonight is a night where I just got the sense, number one, because of how rich and important Revelation 5 is to the rest of the book. But also because I felt like this is a passage that's not done with us yet. And so tonight I want to linger there. I want to kind of pull over, pause, smell the roses, and uh, look at some of the things we talked about last week a little bit more. And there's three things that I want you to look at again. It's the title of the message tonight, Look Again. There's three particular things that I think John even would say we need to look again at these things. First, look again. Do you see that Jesus makes you worthy? Do you see that Jesus is the lion and the lamb? And do you see that you have a role in God's plans for his world? So why don't we read uh, again. Hopefully it's more familiar this time. Revelation 5. John the Apostle is in the throne room of heaven and he says, Then I saw the right hand of him, God the Father, who is seated on the throne. There was a scroll written within and without on the back. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And so I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders, and I don't know if this is five minutes into weeping or... A thousand years into weeping, there's no time in heaven, so I don't know. But he just says, and then one of the elders said to me, John, weep no more. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll. Jesus took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before that lamb, each holding a harp and bowls full of incense, which are your prayers. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seven seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, or bought them back, from every tribe, language, and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Uh, Let's pray together. Father, we are uh, again asking what we've asked you every week. Would you let us see? Would you open our eyes? Um, And Father, we we thank you for protecting our health. We pray for those of us who are at home uh, feeling miserable right now uh, with a stomach bug. So Father, would you be merciful to them as well and to us tonight? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. The church that I started to go to in college... uh, was different than the church I was raised in for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that I noticed quicker than others were was this. They served uh, the communion or the Lord's Supper 
every single week at this church I started going to at college. And if you have any kind of familiarity with the church, Catholic Church, Mass, the Protestant Church, whatever, you know what communion is. It's the bread and the and the wine, and uh, the pastor gets up or the priest, and he says some words over it, and then the people come forward and and take. And the church I was raised in, we did this maybe three times a year, like. Uh, maybe Christmas Eve, Easter, and some other times. And so I'm at this church, and we're doing it every week. And so I'm like, man, I'm loving this because the purpose of communion, it's a sacrament. It's a, it's a means of grace Jesus gives to his church to make you strong, to sustain you and feed you week to week. Uh, to encourage your faith, to grow your faith. So I'm like, man, this is awesome every week. Super encouraging. But as the weeks and months went on, probably into my first year of being at this church, I didn't like it so much anymore. And what had at first been a really encouraging thing every week for me to do became kind of this tormenting, agonizing thing for me. And here's why. I'm sitting in my chair, like, racked with guilt, and every week became this wrestling match. Should I, should I go up and, partake, and participate in this, or should I not? That's like the wrestling match I'm in every week now, and it's agonizing, it's tormenting me, this fine print. And I was misunderstanding what the pastor was saying, but what I heard him say is, come if you're hungry, come if you need Jesus, come if you're broken and weak, but come worthily. And that word worthy snagged me. So I'm sitting there in my chair, no one knows this is going on, and I'm like replaying in my mind how my week had gone sexually. And I'm thinking about all the things I thought and all the things I did that I still feel awful about. And I'm like, well, maybe I shouldn't go. Because this week sure hadn't felt very worthy. And then I'm thinking like relationally, like the people in that church, roommates, whatever, that I've been avoiding, because I'm like, either you annoy me or just like, man, I just don't have time for you. i got other stuff going on in my life. And I felt burdened by that, racked with guilt for that. And then spiritually, above everything else, I'm like, man, if I was really a Christian, if I was really alive to God, I would want to read my Bible more. Maybe I'd pray more. And then I'm like, when's the last time I've even wanted to talk about the gospel with anybody? Those are the things that would come to my mind as I'm sitting in my chair, as everybody around me is going forward in this celebratory meal to kind of nourish their faith. And I felt stuck. And no one knew, no one knew about this. Until I kind of got to a place where I was just so stuck and so desperate, I went and talked to my campus minister, uh, Rob, and I told him about this, and, and Rob goes, Dude, I'm so sorry you've been going through that. He called me Dude. That's why I call you all Dude. It, it stuck with me. He goes, Dude, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. And he said, um, Ben, here's the problem. He said, at the very moment your eyes should be fixed on Jesus and His grace to you, your eyes are fixed on yourself and how far you fall short. He said, look to Jesus in your shame, not at yourself, and take communion. He said to me in that moment, Ben, in the very moment your eyes should be fixed, locked on target to Jesus and His grace to you in your continuing sin, your continuing weakness, He said, your, your eyes are fixed, navel-gazing. 
examining yourself, looking at how far you've fallen short or how well you've performed this week. And he said, look to Jesus and take communion. Now, here's why I shared this with you. I saw my unworthiness to a fault. And you do too, because our unworthiness is attached to our emotions. It's why we feel shame and insecurity and bad self-esteem and everything else. It's why we wonder if people are judging us when we walk into a room. It's why we wonder where we are with God sometimes. And because of that, my, my obsession with my unworthiness, I showed up to church each week trying to prove to God, this week was different, God. This week I was worthy. This week I can, I can go up front and take the wine and the bread. And I think a lot of you can relate to that. And I have a few questions tonight that I think John has for you, Jesus has for you too, that I think can help sort this out, if it's something you can relate to as well. And it's, it's some questions that help us see that Jesus makes you worthy, not you. Let me ask you this question first. When you think of your own unworthiness... Do you most naturally think, oh, so much work to be done there? Or do you think, ah, the work's already done? Where does your mind most effortlessly go when you hear that question? When when you think of your own unworthiness, the way you fall short, do you automatically go to a place of, oh, man, I got a lot of work to do there? Or does your mind and your heart naturally slide to a place of, yes, the work is already done? If your mind most easily goes to that first thing, the ugh, i got a lot of work to do there to make myself worthy, then the song that most naturally rises out of your heart is the song of hopeless weeping, which is the song John was singing before he was singing, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain, the song of worship. When you think about your unworthiness, you think about yourself and how much work you need to do to become worthy again, then the song that's going to come out of your heart is an angry song, it's a noisy song, it's chaotic, it's it's sharp. And it's the song of hopeless weeping. Because deep down you believe that there's nobody who can repair and heal and clean all of the paces you are broken and sick and dirty. And so you think what I thought, and am prone to think often, that it's up to you to do it. And you'll hate God if you stay at that place very long. Because you, you will resent Him for expecting you to be the Messiah. The one who wipes away sin. And you'll go through the motions and you can hear talks like this till the cows come home and they, just, they don't hit with you because you're angry and mad at God because you think He actually is asking you to be Jesus, to be the worthy one. If your mind most easily goes to the second thing, the yes, God has already done the work. When I say think about your unworthiness in your mind, just immediately praise Jesus. He's done the work. It's already done. If that's where your mind and your heart go, then the, 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 the song that most naturally rises out of your heart is a song of hopeful worship. This is the difference in John before the elder tapped him on the shoulder and after. Right? And again, I don't know how long this cosmic search took, but everybody... This angel is looking under the hood of every living creature. Angels, people, priests, prophets... 
everybody. And he's saying no one was found who was worthy to execute this plan that we talked about last week. No one, no one was found who's a worthy architect to build this dream. No, one, well, no, no general was found who can execute this battle plan. No coach was found who could win with this game plan. But if your mind goes to, yes, Jesus was the worthy one, he did it, the work is finished, then the song that comes out of your heart is a song just like this. This resonates with you. When you read this, worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain and by your blood. When you're singing these songs that we sang earlier, it's natural to you. It, it, it doesn't leap off the page, it leaps out of your heart. Because you're restful, not restless, that God has already done the work. Let's tease this apart a little bit more. Think about this. Hopeful worship walks on two legs. One leg is your unworthiness or a sense of your own unworthiness. The other leg is a sense of Jesus' worthiness. And if hopeful worship is going to move anywhere towards God and transform you and grip you, and captivate you. Both of those legs have to be working. Your own sense of your own unworthiness and at the same time your own sense of Jesus' worthiness that he gives to you. If you take out one of those legs, what happens? You are limping in circles forever. We don't go anywhere. There's not a sense of moving towards God and being humbled by him. Remember we were talking the other week about shrinking down to the size we're made to be. There's no sense of that if one of those legs isn't working. We have to be aware of your own unworthiness and His worthiness simultaneously if you're ever going to worship. If you're going to love God, if you're going to enjoy Him, if you're going to delight in Him, if He's going to be real to you, those two things have to be in front of our eyes. If we forget either of those two things, the good news becomes bad news. That's what happens. These are the conversations we have often, right? You and I sitting across the table from each other saying, yeah, man, I I forget the gospel too. Yep, I forgot it as well. And the good news becomes bad news. The good news that Jesus is worthy and makes you worthy becomes you better make yourself worthy again because of what you just did or what you haven't done. How do we get to places of hopeless weeping? How, do we, how does one of these legs break? Either the leg of a sense of my own unworthiness or the leg of a sense of Jesus' worthiness. How does one of those two legs break, consigning us to a life of limping in circles, getting nowhere? How does it happen? I think one of the ways is this. We lose sight of our unworthiness when we forget the gospel and we try to make ourselves better. That's what we've been talking about. Just to summarize and clarify that. It goes like this. You know the little waiting periods we put on sin. Well, I just did that. I can't, like, come back to God right now because it's obviously not sincere and genuine. As if your repentance is the thing that was cleansing you from what you just did. No. Your confession doesn't atone for your sins. Your confession just says to God, it's being honest with Him with what He's already seen, what He's already witnessed. But your confession doesn't cleanse you from your sin and free you from its captivity and resurrect you from the dead? Your confession simply acknowledges what it is. But we have these waiting periods to make ourselves worthy again. i got to wait three days until I don't feel guilty anymore or racked by regret over what I did. Then I'll be at a place where I can approach God again and talk to Him. 
Or we do things like this. Um, if it's not the waiting period, it's if I screw up really big on the weekend, I'll be extra really good Monday through Friday. So it's like if the scale got tipped really far down this way, I'm going to make sure Monday through Friday, man, I'm not going out Thursday, I'm not going out Friday. I used to do that with my friends. I was like, dude, I'm sorry. This week, I'm only going out one night. I'm not saying going out's bad, but what I was doing when I went out is bad. And I was trying to tip the scale. Man, I was really bad here. i got to be really good there to try to measure up. Or we just wait until the pangs of guilt go away. Or the reason we go to church isn't to worship God because we love Him isn't because we're desperately needy and hungry and need Him. We go to church again or we start reading our Bible again or we start getting involved in ministries again to try to make ourselves worthy and pay God for something He refuses payment for. Again, we're lingering tonight, right? That's why we keep circling around on the same stuff. Listen, trying to make yourself worthy before God does not lead to worship. It leads to weeping, just like John's in the first part of this passage. The second way we lose sight of our unworthiness and this leg breaks and we walk in circles and get nowhere is that we allow ourselves to grow cold and self-righteous. And this is when we get to a point where we actually think we've attained worthiness. Like, you're the person in the room who's still with your read through the Bible in a year plan. And that just, it feels awesome. You're like, man, it's the first 2017 and I'm finally, I finally am still with it in mid-March. Or it's been a really good week for you or some pattern of sin that you've been dealing with, you're not dealing with it right now and you're, you're kind of feeling pretty, pretty good about yourself or about where you are. And we grow cold and we grow self-righteous and we actually think that my performance is what's making God happy with me right now. Here's the problem with that. If you know anything about the Bible, you've heard passages throughout the Bible saying God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Right? Things like the proud will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The humble will. When we get puffed up with pride thinking that, man, I am, I'm being a really good Christian right now. This is really working. And God's happy with me. We're on good terms again going well right now. When we get into a mindset of thinking like that, you have no real functional perception of your desperate need for Him and His worthiness. And so you don't come to the altar of God to worship Him and adore the Lamb who is slain. You come to kind of push Him out of the way and put all your own payments right at the altar. Denying or hiding or masking your unworthiness before God does not lead to hopeful worship. It leads to weeping. Just like for John. So listen, whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, don't know where you are. What I'm describing sounds very familiar to you. Because this is where all of us do life to some extent. Which means there's hope for every person in the room. If this describes every person in the room, it means there's hope for every person in the room. And the hope is this. There's a very tangible action step tonight. You can do it now, even before you get home. The action step is look. We've talked about this several times before, and I'm not going to apologize for coming back to it and keep repeating, because John keeps repeating it. Because Jesus keeps saying, look, 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 look. I think it occurs something like 50 or 60 times throughout the book of Revelation. This word behold, which means look with 10 exclamation points. That's what the word behold means. Look. Look 
John, stop weeping. Look, John, stop trying. John, stop wondering if this angel is going to find somewhere, somewhere, someone somewhere who's going to be worthy enough. Stop, John, stop weeping and look. Look at the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered this lion and this lamb. Which leads to the second question. Do you see Jesus as a lion and as lamb at the same time? This is interesting. John is weeping. An elder taps him on the shoulder and one of the 24 elders worshiping around the throne in heaven uh, taps him on the shoulder and he says, John, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah who's conquered. And here's the thing. To John's massive surprise, when John kind of dries his eyes and is able to see straight and turns around and looks, what the, what the, what the elder said was going to be there wasn't there. Did you pick up on that? The elder said, look the lion of the tribe of Judah. What does John see when he turns around, standing in the middle of the throne? It was not a lion. It was a lamb. Verse 6. He sees a lamb standing and he says, as though it had been slain, its throat slit. That's how you sacrificed a lamb in the Old Testament. And it had seven horns, this symbolism for perfect strength. And this lamb had seven eyes, he said. He says it's the spirit sent out to the world, which it's a sign of this lamb, perfectly strong, is, is completely, totally filled with the spirit of God. Says later, Paul says later on in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is life-giving spirit. He's the powerful spirit of God, the omnipotent spirit of God who pours out life on anyone who touches him. What does this mean for us? That the elder says, look, there's a lion. John turns around and there's a lamb, not a lion. And not just that, but it's a lamb who looks as though it has been slain. And not even that either. Because in the original Greek, John doesn't say, look, a lamb. He uses the word for little lamb. It's like ito in Spanish. (laughs) Makes something little. In Greek, John doesn't say, look, a lamb. It's look, a little lamb. Almost, and I'm not trying to be humorous here, but almost as if saying, like, get in your mind the image of Mary's little lamb. He's talking about, look at the little gentle lamb that had been slain. What does this mean for us? It means at least this. Jesus is wildly unexpected. John had known Jesus for the vast majority of his life. John is an old man at this point writing this. John had known Jesus most of his life. And John looks at Jesus expecting to see the Lion of Judah, this fierce and ferocious conqueror who devours his enemies. And what John sees instead is a lamb bleeding. A lamb with seven horns, a lamb with seven eyes. I think beyond just realizing Jesus is wildly unexpected, okay, I'll file that away. He's different than I think he is. This has a practical effect on us as well. It means that Jesus is inherently captivating. He is ironic. He is paradoxical in a way. Because we'll, lead, we'll read later on in Revelation, we're about to hit this rapid-fire series of like five chapters of God's judgment on the world in real living time, like right now, not in the future. And you will see the Lion of Judah devour evil. 
You will see him claw to death things like sickness and sin and sadness and injustice and corruption. You'll see the Lion of Judah. We'll see him and it will unsettle us. But the Lion is the Lamb. It's two, two images superimposed on each other. He is lion and he is lamb, which means Jesus is a mind-blowing paradox, which means look again. Bruce Metzger is a theologian. He put it this way. He said, instead of a ferocious lion that, hunts, that hurts others, the Messiah is a sacrificial lamb who takes into himself the hurts of others. It says, Almighty God brings heaven to earth through sacrificial love. That's the significance that the lion is the lamb. Instead of a lion coming to devour you because of your sin, the lion of Judah becomes a little lamb who drapes your sin on himself and walks himself to the sacrifice to give himself for you. Instead of a prowling lion chasing you down and condemning you for your guilt, Jesus becomes a weak lamb who frees you from your sin. Instead of Jesus the lion throwing a grenade on a grenade of his just and very well-deserved anger, let's be honest, at us. Instead of him throwing that grenade of anger and wrath at us because of the decisions that you and I have freely made, the lamb falls on the grenade shielding his friends from the blast. That's the paradox. That's the irony of the gospel of God. And that is good news. That though every single one of us in our most honest moments knows we deserve punishment, it's why we feel guilty. It's why we feel shamed. But the good news is that instead of God demanding that we fall on the grenade, He jumps on it before it blows up. He takes the blast. You walk free and new. That's the paradox I'm talking about. Isaiah puts it this way. He says, but Jesus, the Messiah, was pierced for your, for my transgressions. He, look at the pronouns here, He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him, and by His wounds, your wounds are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity or the sin of us. It's this blending together that the Lamb of God appearing as though he had been slain, who ransomed a people for God, which means bought you out of slavery. If someone ransomed you and you're a slave, they go to the market that day and they make the highest bid and you belong to them now. This is Jesus buying you back from death, from sin, from slavery. This is the paradox of the gospel. You thought God came to condemn you, to judge you, to crush you, to push you away, to yell at you. And He actually came to take all of your guilt upon Himself. Do you get bored with God? Do you get dull? Does the gospel that's supposed to taste like cold, fresh water, does it feel like water in New Mexico that's been in the sun in June? just kind of thick and warm and not refreshing? 
Do you come here? Do you go to worship? Do you go to church on Sunday mornings? Do you read your Bible at home and you're just like, man, I feel so cold. This feels so lifeless. He feels so boring. Do you feel that? If you do, John would say, look again. Because the Jesus you're bored with does not exist. He is a figment of your imagination. He is a fabrication of your own boredom. The Jesus I just described, is it logically possible to be bored with him? Existentially, is it, is it conceivable that you could look at him and casually dismiss him? Could you look at him and respond with indifference? It's impossible. It's unthinkable. That's like saying someone come up and like punching you in the face and you're, you're indifferent. You can't have an explosive event like that produce nothing. You can't see Jesus and have no response or indifference. John says to you and to me, because look, I'm a Christian. I have no doubt God has made me alive. I have no doubt He's heard my prayers to have mercy on me because I don't measure up. And I'm telling you, I still get bored with God. I find my faith stale and old and crusty. And John calls me, look, Ben, look again, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then I turn and see a lamb as though one who had been slain, who had ransomed me back to my God. Let you wanting to look again be the reason you drag yourself to church on Sunday morning. Don't go to try to make God happy. He's not happy with you because you go to church. Drag yourself there because you desperately know you need to look again and see Him as He is. Because you have, you have you, some other idea, some other image of Him has is, is preoccupied you. Let this be the reason you read your Bible again. Let this be the reason you start praying again. Lord, give me eyes to see you. Not to make God happy, not to do your duty, not to be a good Christian, but so that you can see the one who's right in front of you. Make your goal every day a very simple one. Every morning, pray this. Lord, give me eyes to see you. And then put God under 24-hour surveillance every waking hour in His creation, in His recreation, which is the gospel, Him remaking all of the bad stuff and making it good, all of the dead stuff, making it alive. Obsess yourself. Put him under 24-hour surveillance. Watch him. When you see a bird, thank him. When you taste a beautiful taste, thank him for that. When you have a headache and you take an Advil, praise Jesus for inventing the chemicals that counteract the pain receptors in your brain. When you have a great conversation with a a friend, praise Him. Obsess yourself with Him. Put Him under surveillance. Trace His fingerprints everywhere. This is His world. Everything in it is His. This is what it means to look again and see Him as He is. And look again when you know there is mercy for you the 50th time in a single day you fall again. Praise Him when you know there is patience again for you. Ten years after you thought you'd be done struggling with the sin you thought you'd be done struggling with, but you're not. Stare at Him. Stare at Him. 
What kind of stuff do you stare at? Stuff that doesn't make sense to you. Stuff that is unexpected. Stuff that is surprising. Stuff that is not normal. You don't stare at all the cars on the road that are in the lane doing what they're supposed to be doing. You stare at the car that crashed. You don't stare at the guy or the girl that looks like everybody else. You stare at the one who, in your eyes, stands out because they're not like the rest. We stare at things that captivate us, that are paradoxical, that are ironic, that grab our attention. Jesus is worthy of every second of you staring at him. And by the way, how long have these elders been worshiping Jesus? For eternity. Or since God created them, I should say. How long has all of heaven, all of creation been consumed with ferocious worship and adoration and delight in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Forever. They've been staring at God and never getting bored. Stare at Him. He is worthy of it. The last question is, look again, do you see that you have a role in God's plans for making everything new? Did you catch this? Part of the, the, the chorus of their song of praise is this. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, Jesus. For you were slain and by your blood on the cross you bought people for God from every tribe, language, and people. Here's the thing. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Which means if you're a Christian, you're a priest. Which means if you're a Christian, it's like you have a little clerical collar everywhere you go. You were not just saved to go on your merry way afterwards and keep doing what you're doing. You were saved to be a blessing to the world. You were saved to reach the world with this grace and this lion and this lamb. You were saved to do something. You you have full-time employment in the kingdom of God. No matter what your other calling is as a student, as an engineer, as a doctor, as a nurse, as a mom, your calling is to be a priest to the world. Bringing the grace of God to the world and bringing the world to the grace of God. That is your vocation. You've got to catch yourself next time you say, man, I'm too busy for God right now. You don't get it. If that's the way you're thinking, I'm too busy to go do this, I'm too busy to go to church. No, no, no. You're forgetting that you were saved to be a priest. So if you're going to study all night, study as a priest who wants to learn the world God put you in so that you can serve it better who wants to get the nursing data right so you can be a better nurse and serve and love your neighbors. Be a better engineer who builds stuff that lasts. I want to end with a couple of very practical to-do items of how to be a priest in the world. How to be a priest in the world. Number one, let the world see your unworthiness. Let your tiny little corner of the world, wherever you do life, wherever your friends are, let them see your unworthiness. Because until they see your unworthiness, they won't see Jesus' worthiness. They won't see your need for Him. They won't see His patience towards you, His grace towards you. They won't know what mercy is because they'll be like, this makes sense, you're a good person and God loves good people. No, God loves sinners. Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy. Let the world see you sick. Let the world see you unhealthy. Let the world see you weak. Because then the, the, the attention of the world flows right off your back and onto Jesus, who is worthy. 
and who makes sinners worthy. Forgive those in your little piece of the world when they wrong you or when they make life very difficult for you. You're a priest. You're a priest. When people do evil to you, by God's grace, we absorb that evil the way the Lamb absorbed evil and did not bounce it back on us. But we forgive. How to be a priest, you intercede for your peace of the world. You pray that God would open the eyes of your friends and your family and your sorority sisters and your classmates. Because you know, man, if you're bored with God, if you're dismissing God, it's because you don't see Him. Because He is undismissible if you have eyes. He is unignorable if you're alert to the way the world really is. So you pray for them. Did you notice where your prayers land? The Oval Office of all reality. The throne room of heaven. In the elder's hand were the prayers of the saints. Your prayers aren't thrown up into the air. If there's a higher power here, your prayers land at the feet of Almighty God. Immediately pray for your eyes to be open and your friends' eyes to be open. And don't just pray for your people. Don't just pray for people that when you look at them, it seems like, man, you're a great candidate to become a Christian. You're a really great girl. You're really moral. You're very humble. You're kind of spiritually into this stuff. No, pray for people who aren't your people. Jesus doesn't just save white evangelicals who were raised in the church. He doesn't just save Hispanic Catholics who were raised in the church. He doesn't just show mercy to uh, people who are spiritual minded. Jesus loves and saves every day atheists and agnostics and Catholics and Protestants and little churchgoers who are good and don't need him until he shows you you need him. And he saves whores and he saves prostitutes. And he saves businessmen who are greedy and steal money from people. Jesus saves people just like you and he saves people that are the exact opposite of you. Pray for them. God's kingdom is being built with people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every background. Intercede for them because you are a priest. It is what you are made to do and saved to do. And the last thing is this. Suffer. Suffer for your little piece of the world. Die for your little piece of the world. Because you're united to the Lamb who was slain, who died and suffered for His enemies. So suffer and die for your friends and for your enemies. Give your time to them. Time you'll never get back. Give your money to them. Money you'll never get back. Give your energy to them. Energy you'll never get back. It's death. Give it away. Lay down your life. Suffer. Because that is the way. That is the game plan. That is the blueprint. That is the battle plan that God is using to make everything sad come untrue and everything bad become good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, open our eyes. We humbly ask. Teach us to worship. Teach us to step into the big shoes of our calling. And when we run from this calling to be priests, to reign with you now, we pray that you give us courage and grace to come back and step into these shoes again. We ask this all in your name. Amen.